You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Actionable intelligence, culling signal from noise, and the online resilience of threat groups. Ransomware hits a legal case management system. The city of Johannesburg continues its recovery from an online extortion attempt. The raccoon information stealer looks like a disruptive product in the criminal-to-criminal market. Not the best, but good enough and cheaper than the high-end alternatives. And who's more vulnerable to scams, seniors or young adults? It's complicated. From the CyberWire studios at Datatribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Monday, October 28, 2019. ISIS leader Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi died Saturday in Syria's Idlib province, killing himself and, sadly, three of his children as U.S. Special Operations Forces cornered the terrorist leader in a tunnel. According to The Voice of America, U.S. Defense Secretary Esper said late-breaking actionable intelligence developed that morning enabled the attack to be executed within hours. Reuters says al-Baghdadi was located with the assistance of captured ISIS leaders. Whatever its accuracy, this report and others like it will probably erode the terrorist group's relationships of trust. One of al-Baghdadi's principal lieutenants, spokesman Abu Hassan al-Muhajir, was killed in a U.S. airstrike hours after the Idlib raid, the Times reports. A Bloomberg op-ed argues that terrorist groups like ISIS have proven resilient to leaders' deaths. Expect any regrouping to be foreshadowed by information operations. What sort of late-breaking actionable intelligence Defense Secretary Esper referred to is, of course, and quite properly, left unclear. But developing target indicators into targets can be a difficult process, and indicators are often missed. One such set of indicators seems to have surrounded one of the last high-profile massacres el-Baghdadi claimed for ISIS, the Easter massacres in Sri Lanka this April. A parliamentary select committee convened to review the attack concluded that Sri Lanka's intelligence leaders missed reports that should have alerted them to an imminent attack. Those reports began arriving as early as April 4th, 17 days before the April 21st attack. Apart from direct observation of online terrorist chatter, which can be notoriously noisy, the security forces are said to have failed to act on domestic police warnings and alerts fed to them by Indian intelligence services. Missing signal is an old problem. The U.S. certainly did the same during the run-up to 9-11. This weekend, as the Diwali celebrations arrived, authorities in India raised the alert level in several cities as the Pakistan-based terror group Jaish-e-Mohammed threatened attacks against those celebrating the Hindu Festival of Lights. Those attacks seem not to have materialized, and that's another instance of chatter being disruptive noise. A ransomware attack against TrialWorks, a widely used legal case management system, 
has caused disruption of trials and schedules as TrialWorks recovers and as the law firms that use the product look for workarounds and alternatives. Bleeping Computer says the ransomware strain involved is so far unknown, but the attack resembles in some respects August incidents that involved GanCrab's successor, our evil Sodinokibi. TrialWorks says it's decrypting the affected files, which has led to speculation that they went ahead and paid the ransom. The city of Johannesburg sustained a breach Thursday that led it to suspend most online services. The group claiming responsibility, the Shadow Kill Hackers, has said they'll publicly dump all the stolen data if they weren't paid for Bitcoin by 5 p.m. Johannesburg time today. That was 11 a.m. U.S. Eastern time, so the deadline has come and gone. We don't have any word yet on whether the Shadow Kill Hackers have done what they threatened to do or whether Johannesburg has paid up. Here's what Johannesburg City staffers told SC Magazine was in the note they received. Quote, Hello, Joburg City. Here are Shadow Kill Hackers speaking. All of your servers and data have been hacked. We have dozens of back doors inside your city. We have control of everything in your city. We can shut off everything with a button. We also compromised all passwords and sensitive data, such as finance and personal population information. Your city must pay us for bitcoins. If you don't pay on time, we will upload the whole data available to anyone in the Internet. We note in passing that their style is like a somewhat less over-the-top version of Shadow Broker Ease, a scriptwriter's conception of broken English we confess we continue to miss. The attack was initially described as ransomware, but that may be misleading. There does indeed appear to be an extortion demand, but the disruption to city services appears to have been largely a precautionary measure taken by the city government itself, which tweeted that interruption of services were consequences of the investigation. The city said that customers will not be able to transact on e-services or log queries via the city's call center or customer service centers. Most services were restored over the weekend. The shadow kill hackers made two threats. In addition to dumping the information online and telling everyone how they got it, they also threatened to delete all the data permanently. If that's more than an empty threat, it suggests they dropped a wiper into Johannesburg's network. Researchers at security firm Cyber Reason have offered their take on the raccoon information stealer that's gaining black market share in the criminal-to-criminal markets. It's not sophisticated, but it's relatively cheap and easy to use, which makes it a classic example of a disruptive product. Raccoon is available for $175 to $200, and it's usually delivered via the Fallout or Rig exploit kits. Raccoon's native home seems to be the Russian criminal underground. It began as a password stealer, but has expanded into other forms of data theft. And finally, who's most gullible with respect to online scams? Specifically, which age cohort is likeliest to take the fish bait, and who's more predisposed to spit the hook? Well, the U.S. Federal Trade Commission has reached what will be for many a surprising, counterintuitive conclusion on the matter. You may think that the proverbial grandpa and grandma are likelier to fall victim to phishing scams than others. But no. Actually, people over 60 are less likely to take the fish bait than are younger adults, particularly millennials. The FTC's recent report on protecting older consumers reached that conclusion. There is a downside, however. While older adults are less likely to fall for scams than are the young adults, when seniors do bite on the fraud, their losses tend to be higher. Those over 80 seem to take the biggest hit per scam. So everyone, young or old... 
click with caution and read with appropriate open-minded skepticism, which is good advice at any age. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program, quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com slash cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration, Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. And joining me once again is Joe Kerrigan. He's from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute, also my co-host on the Hacking Humans podcast. Joe, it's great to have you back. It's good to be back, Dave. Uh, before we dig into today's story, you have a little bit of follow-up for us. I have us. Uh, some correction. Uh, last week, I made the comment that I was considering not giving future healthcare providers my actual birth date. Mm-hmm. And someone hit me up on Twitter, Franklin, thank you for pointing this out, that if you do that, then your claims may not be paid because... That piece of PII is used to identify you with the insurance company. Ah. So uh, if the insurance company gets a different birth date, they're going to say, this isn't the right Joe Kerrigan, and they're not going to pay my claim, and I have to give them the correct birth date because uh, I need to give the my employer my correct birth date, who then gives it to my insurance company, who then asks my doctor for it. I see. So, so you could be shooting yourself in the foot. Yep. So right. don't do that. If you've already done it, go out and correct it. <laughs> okay. Sorry. Fair enough. Fair <laughs> enough. Well, uh, this week uh, we're talking about a story that came by from ThreatPost. This is from uh, Tom Spring, and mm-hmm. it's titled, 15 Years Later, Metasploit Still Manages to Be a Menace. A menace. A me- I don't like that term. A menace. <laughs> and a useful tool for penetration <laughs> testers. Yeah. Well, before we dig in here, just a quick overview on what is Metasploit for folks who may not be familiar with it. Metasploit is a framework. I'm not intimately familiar with it. But it is a tool that you can use to penetrate uh, networks. It comes 
pre-bundled with a bunch of known exploits. Mm. And if you discover an exploit or a vulnerability, then you can write your own exploits in Metasploit and uh, have them run and you can distribute them as well so that other penetration testers can use it as well. But just like any other tool, it can be misused mm. and frequently is misused. Right. Um, when you hear the term script kitty, these are generally people who are who are learning to use Metasploit and running very simple attacks against other targets that may not be protected against it. And there is even a uh, graphic user interface called Armitage for the Metasploit framework. I see. So it makes hacking very easy. But that's the intent of the tool was to make was it was designed by a guy who had you know was a network administrator and had to do all this other stuff along with have uh, test the security of his network, so he automated the process of te- testing the security of his mm. network. They built a tool to make his own job easier, yep. shared it with the community, yep. and of course any tool can be used for good or bad. Right. So what are they getting at here with their uh, with the, the notion that it uh, could be a menace? They're, they're talking about a particular technique that Metasploit presents called Shikata Ganai, which is Japanese for nothing can be done. And what it does is it makes your exploit polymorphic, so it's very difficult to see it when you when it's coming in through your network. Hmm. So detection systems are less likely to find it, uh, and the exploit is more likely to be successful. So it's doing some some encryption, some scrambling of, of what your yep, it uses, software would be looking for. It uses something called XOR encryption. Uh-huh. It's a very basic type of encryption. Uh, it is good, and actually it's technically unbreakable if you have a long enough random key. But those keys are one-time use keys. It's effectively a one-time pad cipher. Hmm. So XOR is a bitwise operator, which means that if you go through a string of bits one at a time, you can encode them with a key. But the the great thing about it is that you can decode them with the same operation and the same key. Hmm. So if I have a key that's exactly as long as the message that has enough randomness, it imparts all of that randomness to the message, and then that randomness is easily deciphered with with the same key. Okay. But it pretty much requires pre-shared keys or or some way to share that key. And those keys can only be used once. If you use them multiple times, it's very easy to break the, break the encryption. I see. So that's that's a high-level look at, at XOR encryption. And so as that applies to Metasploit here, it's, it's just a matter of making the making the scripts harder to detect? Right. What they're doing is they're using XOR to make the payloads uh, harder to detect because they essentially look like random strings of bits. And then uh, once the payload is in the target system, it's trivial to decrypt it if the software has the key. All right. So, I mean, overall, Metasploit, uh, valuable tool. But just like any other tool, it's going to have bad uses and, and people that are good, at, very good at using it. And there are people out there that are remarkably good at using this tool. A lot of them are on the good guy side. But a lot of them are also on the bad guy side. Yeah. All right. Well, Joe Kerrigan, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, 
Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Tomorrow.